0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Fountain Church podcast. Our prayer is that God speaks to you in a real and powerful way. So go ahead, grab your Bible, grab a notepad and your coffee, and let's dive in. I'm excited. We're getting ready to embark on a brand new series entitled Masterpiece we're going to be looking just for four weeks at Jesus's masterpiece of a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. There's no way that we can cover the whole Sermon on the Mount in four weeks, not even the slightest. Uh, But we're just going to take four particular uh, weeks and pull out a few aspects from it on our way leading up to Easter. Can you believe Easter is almost here? Uh, Incredible. But uh, but I'm really excited. And I I want to start off by talking to you today a little bit about deciphering the difference deciphering the difference would you guys pray with me heavenly father lord as we dive into your word i pray and you know my heart's cry god is we're not here just to listen to a message or go through a religious routine god we're here to hear from you we want to encounter you jesus in a very real way and so holy spirit would you give us eyes to see would you give us ears to hear illuminate our hearts and mind to the scripture uh, if we just ate coming into third service keep us afresh and awake and uh, Lord, I pray that everybody tuning in at home and online, God, that you would meet them in their living room or wherever they're at, that your glory would be revealed in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 I don't, I don't know about you, but when it comes to food, I'm that guy, when I was a kid, I would smell everything. Do anybody know somebody like that? Like before you eat, you smell it. Pastor James would give me a bad time about it all the time. I don't do it like I used to. But, but what, it, what it did is, I'm able to taste the difference. Uh, for, for example, if there was a particular food that I really liked, and maybe they used a different ingredient, I, I, could, I could tell. And this happens with protein bars a lot. Protein bars, they always start off really, really good, right? Like, like some of the organic ones, some of the non-GMO protein bars. They start off, they taste good even though they're healthy. But then once they start to get popular, you, you taste a little difference. Like the cocoa isn't the same, right? The chocolate they're using, something's shifted. And, and it's, it's, an, it's annoying because you know that something has changed, but you really can't do much about it. It's just, oh, like, deciphering the difference. Now, that's first world problem, so food's not, not that big of a deal. But, but if you were to purchase a painting that you're going to spend thousands or even millions of dollars on, how many of you guys know you'd want to be able to decipher the difference? The difference between the real and the fake. And when you look at art these days, uh, I mean, it can get a pretty high price tag depending on the artist. But one of the things that experts say is that when you're examining a piece of artwork to determine the authenticity of it, they use the back just as much as they use the front. In fact, many experts won't even start with the front of the painting. Obviously, they may acknowledge the the photograph or whatever is painted, but they won't investigate that first. They, They turn it over because... What they, what they say is that there's a lot of replicas. There's a lot of prints. There's some that are just fake, some are phony. But one of the key ways that you can know if it's authentic is you look at the back and the wood should look a little oxidized, right? They said that some of these artists, they would smoke tobacco, some of these ancient guys. And because the wood was so saturated in tobacco, you could literally smell the tobacco, uh, as you put your nose to the back of the painting. that That's how deep they want you to get involved. They, they want to use all of your senses. They want you to look at how the canvas is attached because obviously um, it's easy to know if there's staples on the back. It's probably not a Van Gogh. And and so they, they want you to examine the back, and then they'll turn it over to the front, and they said, you should be able to see some clearly defined brush strokes. There should be texture and dimension, and there should be a sheen that's not really bright, but it's a little bit dull, yet it's still brilliant. Because they said on some of the prints, you can see texture, and you can see brush strokes, but they said you can tell the difference between an old painting and a new painting by the sheen. Now, they said people are getting really good at replicas and making the wood look old and all those things. So you you really, if you're going to spend a lot of money, you want to hire an expert that can really help you walk through. But they said the last thing they look at is the signature. And I thought, normally when I was growing up, it was all about the signature. Like, you know, is this a real baseball card? That sign, look at the signature. But what they would say is, no. That's not a great place to start. In fact, you want to examine all of the painting, then look at the signature, because they said many times, there are paintings that artists never paint, but people slap their signature on it. And so people see the signature, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is a Van Gogh, or this is, you know, Michelangelo. And those are millions and millions of dollars, by the way. And, and so they, they, they get really excited because they see a signature, and many times they'll show and say, hey, I got a Van Gogh, and, and one of the experts will say, no, he, he never even painted that picture. And so they're like, the signature is important. It's the last thing, it's, it's not that important. It's the last thing that you look at. It is important, but it's not the first thing that you want to look at because a lot of time the signatures are attached to paintings they never even painted. And I want you to kind of hold that in your thought, in your mind as, as we navigate today. And then I think what's what's really important is deciphering the referee on a football field. Like you need to be able to decipher the difference between the ref and the players. Are you tracking with me on that? Because the referee compared to the players normally is a little bit smaller. And if he gets mistaken as a player, like he or she can get dramatically injured. And it can go really bad on the field. So it's important we're able to decipher the referee from the players. But even more than that, could you imagine if the referee wasn't able to decipher the game? Because you imagine a referee on the field and the game is happening and they're confused? It's like, oh my goodness, what is happening? What is that play? Was it- is that a flag on the play? Is that, was- is that a flag? Is that team Like, what if they didn't understand the game. Right. Like your first thought would be, well, why would they even be a referee? They wouldn't be a referee because a referee clearly needs to understand the game on, that, that's happening on the field because if not, it would be brutal. Fights would be breaking out and they're like, is this fair? Is this necessary, unnecessary roughness? Like, what is this? And it would be a mess. It'd be, a ca- it'd be chaos on the field. It'd be a lot of pain points. And I, I would propose to you today that as followers of Jesus, that I think there are some pain points. In our lives, even as a a church community, even as a capital C church here in America, I love the church. I'm not a guy that bags on the church. But I also think, man, we need to be honest, just like I am with my life, just like I am with my marriage, just like I am in my relationships. I think we have to be honest when there's some pain points that we need to lean into, that that we need to be able to decipher between uh, what is real and what is not, what is true and what is false. And as believers, if we get away from that and we're not able to discern that, things can get really painful. And I, but I think there's some obvious pain points that we're wrestling with. And, and the first one is this, is, is our identity in Christ. Yeah. I, I think if we're not careful, we can spend our life defining ourselves by secondary cultural issues rather than biblical kingdom mandates, And so we can get caught up on on some of the secondary stuff. Uh, Like, for instance, I remember growing up, I've been wearing white shoes. I've been preaching for about 20 years. I've been wearing white shoes since the beginning. So now they kind of got popular a little bit, but then they're going to go out. I'm still going to be wearing them. Then they're going to come back in. I'm still going to be wearing them. But I I remember growing up, there was kind of this notion that if you wore a suit and tie, that the anointing might be stronger on your life. (laughs) That, that, That the Holy Spirit lived in the tie. And so, so I'd know when I'd walk into like youth camps and I'm the guest speaker, they would look like, oh no, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be a bad night. And then the spirit of God would fall and just, it'd be a, an incredible night. But, but I, I remember that, that they would take cultural preferences. That, that's neither right nor wrong. Like God is not tripping on Air Force Ones or the tie. Do you know what I mean? But they would take cultural preferences and they would turn them into moral imperatives. They would take secondary issues and declare them as biblical mandates, and the Pharisees did this all the time. They would take secondary issues. They would even take their own traditions that they added to the scriptures, and then they would determine who's in and who's out by those secondary issues. Right? Pride would enter into their hearts, and it became a brutal game of comparison. Uh, this this passage found in Luke chapter eight, eighteen verses. 9 through 14 says this It says, To some who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt, Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I am not like the other men. Swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Right? Just I'm so grateful that I'm not like these people. Basically, I'm amazing. I got it together, everything looks good. Today, it might look like this in some of our groups. Lord, I thank you so much. God, I thank you that I'm not like those conservatives. God, I thank you so much that I'm not like those liberals. Swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, just like this tax collector. I mean, for me, I pay my tithes twice a week. I I, I fast twice a week, I pay my tithes of all that I acquire. But the tax collector stood and had a different posture. He stood at a distance and said, man, I'm unwilling even, un, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. And said he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I just use it. I mean, that's just what's, what's happening a lot in our culture today. Even in the church, thank God I'm not like this group or that group or this group or that group. And can I just tell you, fasting is important, but, but you can fast and not be saved. Yeah. Like you can fast and your heart be far from God. Paying your tithes, that's important, but you can still pay tithes and not be close to Jesus. And so, so those are secondary things that, that rather than giving glory to God and thanking God and, and, and seeing ourselves through a healthy lens of God's grace, God's mercy that he's bestowed upon us, the Pharisees, they just were like, man, thank you that I'm not like them. And, and it's interesting because in our day, I think we have to be careful that just because we have opinions on secondary cultural issues, it doesn't mean that you're acting like Jesus. And some of this you may need to take in for a minute, you may need to, to, to wrestle with, but, but if we're constantly defining ourselves by what we're against, rather than defining ourselves by who God says that we are in him and the character that we're exhibiting, we have a pain point. We have a pain point. And so, so from there, we, we transition to another pain point, which is moral conformity. Now, this is kind of heartbreaking. And I, I want you to know, like, I'm not trying to bum you out today, but I am trying to be honest and real. That These are some real pain points in the church today with us. And so moral conformity, for the most part, statistically, we look just like the world does when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to porn, when it comes to our spending habits, when it comes to our life choices, uh, when it comes to our decisions on major issues. We look pretty statistically, this is my opinion, it's just statistically, we look a lot like the world does. In other words, many times we're building on the same foundation of the world, but then we're decorating our house with Christian ornaments and language. But really not reflecting the beauty, the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Are you with me? It says this in uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And So not only do we have, and on the identity portion, we could go into a lot of different aspects, um, but, but I think we also see on this um, moral conformity that there's a heart issue. Because all of these things flow from the heart. The heart is, is kind of that foundational piece, if you would. And then, and then not only are, are we struggling with moral conformity, but we're also dealing with ideological idols. And this is huge. So I want you to, you're going to dive deep with me for a moment, and then we're going to come up and breathe. Are you, are you with me? Now, now, an ideology is an idea that many times takes a part of truth and then makes that part of truth a whole truth. And then ends up distorting the truth and, and kind of goes against the original vision. Uh, and ideology is, is something that <clears throat> many times is an idea that's taken and is exalted above God. And is put in the position of God. So it's like we take a good thing, because uh, an and ideology a lot of times has a little good portion of truth, and we can take a good thing, but when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, when we make that thing God, things start to break down, and disaster starts to strike. Are you tracking with me on that? And so, so we take things like, like politics, freedom, justice, equality, those are all great things. And even in scripture, we see God speaking to these areas, but those things were never meant to be God. And when we take those things and we put them in the position of God, now we have a breakdown because those things were never meant to be God. Are you tracking with me? So just, just bear with me. When we look at ideologies, you might be saying, well, what are you, what are you like talking about? How does this, what, is, what does that even mean? Well, the common denominator in ideology is, is really humanity and its ways is at the center, not God. And so, so all of a sudden, humanity, be, humanity in its ways, its moral reasoning, its autonomy becomes at the center of our life rather than God himself. And, and, and just to be honest with you, we were never created to orbit around ourselves. We were created to orbit around God. Anytime we've got that distorted throughout history, it ends very tragically. And that's just not my opinion. That's just as we look out into history. And so with that, with that being said, many times things start off as a good theory or an idea for a better society, and then all of a sudden that idea becomes uh, n- not just an idea, but it becomes God. It tries to replace God in our life and becomes a metaphysical lens that we start to interpret all of life through, rather than the gospel. Wow. See, as, as followers of Jesus, God calls us to see everything through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the scripture. So what do I mean by that? That the way that we see God, that the way that we see the world, the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see one another should have the gospel as the filter, not an ideology. And anytime, listen, it doesn't, and, and can I just tell you, a lot of kingdom living, which we're gonna talk about today, is gonna impact a lot of those things. But some of these things, that some, some great ideas that we have are never meant to become God. When they replace God, we have a problem. So, for instance, uh, Exodus chapter 32 verses 1, this is not new. This is actually ancient of taking an idea and glorifying it to a God status. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. Now, get this picture. Moses is up on the mountaintop hearing from God to give, to, you know, to give God's word to the people. And they're like, Mo, you're taking too long. We don't even know where you're at. We're not even sure what's going on down here. So they said, how about we make some gods for ourselves? Sounds like a great idea. He says, as for this, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. He could have died on the mountain. Maybe God killed him. We don't know. But then they said this. So Aaron, the high priest, the pastor, if you would, It was like, man, what do I do with this, man? I'm feeling a lot of pressure on this end. So he said, all right, well, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And think about this. God had already gone out before them, delivered them from slavery, Is you know, demonstrated his power and his glory and his presence with them by a cloud by day that was very evident and a pillar of fire by night. God said, I'm going to go before you. Moses said, God, if your presence doesn't go before us, I don't want to go. We don't want to go. But these guys got impatient. They had an idea. That idea then turned into an ideology, which turned into an idol, which they began to worship. And that was not good. Are you tracking with me on that? And so I, I like what John Mark Homer says. He says, that, he says that ideologies many times try to replace God. And so they'll offer identity that's fragile. They'll they'll offer a worth, even though it's performance-based. They'll offer belonging, meaning, purpose. They'll offer a new scale of good and evil, and they'll also declare who's in and who's out. They'll give you a hope of a better tomorrow, all without God, sometimes against God, even using God's signature. And so, so when you look at this, that's exactly what they did. They said, okay, this calf now is Yahweh. This is the God that goes before you. And so what did they do? They took God's signature and they put it on the wrong painting. And so as a result of this, as a result of these pain points, it's also affected our witness as followers of Jesus. Jesus. Now, this is cool because if you're not a follower of Jesus right now and you're listening online, we're so grateful that you're here and you just get to, you know, kind of, you're like, man, yeah, go get them, Pastor Matt, because I don't really see. I have some of these problems, too. So you get to sit back, eat your popcorn, relax, enjoy. Uh, But for us that are following Jesus, this is important because the world is watching our lives. And this dramatically affects our witness. See, when God ceases to be God in our life, man, things, things get destructive pretty quick. I love what Peter says. He says... But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, meaning set Jesus apart as Lord of your life. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The problem is today, not a whole lot of people are asking questions in regards to followers of Jesus, in regards to our lives, because if Christ is not set apart as Lord, number one, we're not gonna be prepared. Number two, our life isn't very questionable because we look just like the rest of the world. So like, there's really no questions to ask that I'm interested in. And then, man, our hope is going to be skewed because we're putting our hope in things or, 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 or idols other than the one true and living God. And then gentleness and respect, it can very be easily just to live a life of arguing, arguing and grumbling and complaining. But, but I think this really paints a clear picture of what I'm trying to say. It's, it's an atheist author, and this is what he writes about Christianity. He says, if Christianity is such an essential add-on, Why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And what he's just saying is just answering honestly, like, I don't see much of a difference. Like, I, like, I don't, there, there's nothing, it just kind of seems like Jesus is an add-on, but really not Lord over, over our life. And so I think it's a great opportunity for us today, as we embark on this series, as Paul said, to examine ourselves, to see whether you are in the faith, to test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, of course, unless, of course, you fail the test. See, what, what, what Paul is saying is if Christ is living on the inside of us, his life is going to flow from us. It's going to be evident. And, and I'm not saying that, well, I'm not talking about perfection or anything like that, but I'm saying the direction of our life, there should be something different about our lives. Then we get around some people, they're like, wow, like, you respond differently. or this is, There's something different about you. There should be, like, we should be, and it, we, we should be living and breathing in such a way where Christ is Lord, and that really reflects to the world that he really is Lord of our life, and it changes everything about our life. And so, but if we're not careful, we'll just examine ourselves based on the standards of the world. We'll just examine ourselves based on how the world says we should examine ourselves, or even on some of the things that that I just spoke of, rather than looking at the life and teaching of Jesus and sitting down in that place and saying, okay, Lord, am I really a reflection of you in the earth. And so I'm giving you a context today. I'm giving you a 30,000 foot view because that's going to drop us right into the heart of our text of Jesus's, what some would say is is the greatest masterpiece of a sermon, his sermon on the Mount. And this is a picture that I took personally in Israel. This is on the Mount of Beatitudes. Just so you know, if you're interested in going to Israel, I think we're going to go next year, uh, potentially in February. So more to come. But uh, you can see in the background there, that's the Sea of Galilee. So if you have the Sea of Galilee kind of as a little lake in your mind, it's, it's really big. It's huge. And, uh, and this is the hillside where Jesus would have been preaching and teaching from, except it wouldn't be this exact location. You see a nice little tractor trail right there. Um, but it, it would have been on the hillside right on the other side, right to the right of this. But this would have been Jesus' view as he sat down to teach. Uh, but, but I think this is so important because a lot of times when we think about Jesus teaching on a hillside with a gorgeous view. We, we kind of get this, this hippie on a hillside feel. You know, like Jesus, is, his robes are flowing and long hair, like all these, all these pictures of Jesus that we've been given in our culture, right? And then his disciples come around. And it's kind of a kumbaya moment, like Jesus, tell us some poetic words teaching and, and teaching. That, and that's why it's important that you actually read and study the Bible because that's not the setting of this at all. In fact, let me give you the context of right before this is Jesus is about to teach about to preach and let me give you the setting leading up to this and so Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 and 25 says Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So get this picture in your mind. This is everything but a cutesy little hippie moment on a hillside. Like, everybody is engaged. The power of God is being manifested. People are getting healed. Demons are coming out of people. Imagine experiencing that. I mean, the power of God is on full display. And these people, look at they're from all different parts of the region with different beliefs, different ideologies when it comes to life and, and, and how life should be lived, different religious views. And so this is... Anything but Jesus on a hillside just with a couple of disciples telling the story. No, people from all around the region have come and have crowded around him because of the power of God on full display. They're leaning in like never before to see what is going to come out of this guy's mouth. That's the intensity of the moment. That's the reality as Jesus begins to teach. And so, so what does he teach about? He starts to talk about the kingdom of God. He starts to talk about the core doctrines of the kingdom of God. And you might be asking, well, what did he teach? And Jesus begins to answer a question that I think all of us have, has, has either, we've all asked this question. Some of us are asking it right now. Some of us are wrestling through it. But Jesus starts to a, answer a, a question that all of us long to know. And, and it doesn't matter where they came from, what part of the region, all of us want to know, like what is the blessed life? Like, What really is the good life? How do I really live in a place of fulfillment? How do I really live this abundant life that God speaks about? How do I actually live where I'm happy? And, and all of us have asked that at one point or another. In fact, this question is becoming more and more popular. And I'll prove it to you. In 2000, the year 2000, 50 books were written on happiness. By 2008, 4,000 books in 2008 alone were written on happiness. That's called it like a trend where people are asking, like, how? I don't know what happiness looks like. What does it look like to really be fulfilled? And so Jesus uses this word over and over and over, Blessed. And it's cool, you got to say that like, blessed is the one, right? Just sounds very script, very, very powerful and scriptural and holy. You guys are a tough crowd today, but it's all good. Um, uh, you're like, I'm leaning in. What does he say? And so he uses this word blessed, which is the Greek word makaros, and it means to become long or large. It means growth, expansion, like, like he's going to expand our capacity. And, and properly, when God extends his benefits, his kingdom and the advantages that he bestows on us, the result of that is blessed. And this word actually means in the Greek, happy. So Jesus is basically like, you want me to tell you how to be happy? I'm about to break it down. Not only am I going to break it down to you, I can deliver it. And so, so this is a huge moment. Now, when I say he started to talk about the kingdom of God, what Jesus was saying is, is there's a new kingdom in town and a kingdom is simply another name for a new administration, a new rule, a new reign. There, there's going to be a new set of values, a new set of promises. And so Jesus begins to unpack what, what the kingdom of God, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? What does it look like to live this blessed life, this happy life? And so, so he, he, he begins to proceed, and it's, it's unlike, I think, anything that you and I would think about when it comes to being happy. Let me tell you what I mean by that. All of us have a definition of happiness. And Jesus, many times when we look at the scripture, we have an idea of a lot of things, and then the Lord just kind of blows it up. And this is what is happening in in this moment. Like all of us have said, you know when you break up with somebody, and maybe you told them, hey, listen, I don't know. I know it didn't work out between us, but as long as you're happy, it's all good. Right, some of you, and some of you are on the opposite end, like, Lord, I pray they're never happy again. Let them live the ruined life in the name of Jesus, right? But, but we've all said it at, at one point or another. Like we, We've all said this. Maybe we've uttered these words. I, I just, listen, God, I don't want much. I just want to be happy. I just want to, just want to be fulfilled. I'm not asking for the world. I just want to be happy. Some of us look at, you know, our life, and and it seems like, man, happiness doesn't even look possible as we look around and as we contemplate that reality. But but what happiness means, how we view it, many times Jesus blows that reality up. At least he did for for, for the people of his day, and I know for certain that he's about to blow us up once again. And he says, no, you want to know what the blessed life is? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, like happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that are merciful, those that are pure in heart, those that are peacemakers. Like, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now this is beautiful. Sounds super poetic, but if we're honest, many times seems very irrelevant to our life. I mean, imagine you, you walk into work, or you, you step on a campus, hey Matt, how you doing? Poor in spirit today, I'm doing wonderful. <laughs> I'm just realizing my destitution without God, my dependence and my need for him, that apart from God, I am spiritually impoverished in desperate need of a savior. I'm doing amazing. Right? They're like, what? Like, like, like you go to the water cooler and you're like, man, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing so good. I've been mourning like crazy. I've been broken over the sin of the world and just, just, I mean, just, just feel so much remorse over my sin. Been doing business with God all morning. It's been amazing. It's been a great day. Right, So none of us, it just doesn't feel like it, it, it fits. Because many of us have defined happiness as something that we pursue that we think we need. Like, if I can just get my hands on this, if I can just fix this, God, if you could just give me that. If I can just figure this out, then I'll be happy. Wow. But Jesus kind of blows up the whole thing. And I would propose to you that happiness is not found by pursuing something you think you need, it's pursuing Jesus and letting him form you into the person he's called you to become. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's like a little golf clap, that's good, is it kinda of good, that's great. It's great, super good, let's go. Uh, this is, no, this, this is it. But, but, but even, and here's the hard part, and if, if, if you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna kinda of bag on Christians a little bit, you can give me a thumbs up in the chat. Um, and when I speak about that, I'm talking about myself, is that many times we, we know this as believers. That's the hard part. And, and we would say it's true. But then we still are lot, live our lives in such a way like the world where we're just, if I can just get this, like if I, if I can just fix this, this relationship, if I could just get a hold of, you know, this career, if I could just, you know, get an opportunity here. If I, and we still live in the same mindset. And even though we know it to be true, we still fall into the same patterns that happiness is something that we pursue rather than pursuing Jesus and letting him form us into everything he's called us to become. And Jesus said, that's where the blessed life is found. And so that drops us right into 1912, the Titanic. Uh, Everybody's familiar with the Titanic? Uh, If not, there's a good movie on it, you know. And I uh, actually don't know if I can recommend that movie. Uh, but, uh, but the Titanic set off in 1912 from England to the United States. And it was said that one of the, the creators, or I don't know if it was the, the founder or the builder of it, said, man, not even God can sink this ship. It's just powerful and majestic. And, and it's, it's weird. It's kind of like, yeah, on its first sail. It went down. It was tragic. So many people lost their lives. It was, it was a tragic event in, in history. But many of us know that this event, that it happened because the Titanic hit an iceberg. And that's true. It hit an iceberg, sprung a leak, and, and then the boat began to sink. But that wasn't the first reason why. The first reason why, many people don't know this, is it goes back to a guy by the name of David Blair. It's not his fault, but David Blair was second in command and he got repositioned the day before they set sail. So which is no big deal. People get repositioned all the time. But in his pocket, he had the key to the locker of the crow's nest. Now, the crow's nest is this big lookout point that some of the crew would go up on top, especially in dangerous waters. And they would look out to make sure that they're not going to hit anything because that's, you know, back in the day, they didn't have the technology that we have now. And so so the importance of these keys was huge because inside the locker of the crow's nest was binoculars. And so as they set off to sail, they didn't have the key. I guess nobody thought of breaking into the locker. And so they ran into the iceberg because they were looking with human sight alone and they could not see that far in front of them. And so some would say, man, if they only had the lens, the right lens, That might not have happened. And I think that's so key. I think that one of the missing keys right now is that many times, listen, we are living in such a way that that if we're honest, it's not always reflecting the kingdom of God. And a big part of it, it's it's scary. Um, It's one thing to know that, but it's scary when we can't see that. And then we wonder why we keep hitting proverbial icebergs. It's because we're leaning on human sight. And human reasoning, rather than absorbing the wisdom of God and being able to see by the power of his spirit. And I just think in in the times that we're living in, we we gotta have a supernatural sight and discernment as things get more and more complex so that we can see more and more clearly. Are you with me? Because the truth of the matter is the kingdom of God it looks ridiculous. It look, I mean, imagine the Romans were like, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're doing all right. We're, we're conquering. Like this would have looked so ridiculous to the Romans. But Jesus is not talking about an external reign. He's talking about a, a, a life that's transformed. And, and then you had just the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The kingdom of God did not fit with them either. The Pharisees, they thought the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in by adherence to the law. So they're like Jesus, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. Some of the poor in spirit. Like, we're doing great. We're we're awesome. Like, we're adhering to the law. That's how the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in. Then the Sadducees were a little bit more modern. Sadducees were a little bit more on the side of, hey, listen, Rome is dominating. Why don't we cut a deal with them and just live out our lives peacefully? Right? And then you have the Essenes. The Essenes is kind of the tribe or the group that John the Baptist came out of. And those are the guys that were like, run for the hills. It's all messed up. Go to the desert. And that's what they did. Everything is messed up. They're like prepper on steroids. Right? <laughs> Dig a hole in the earth and tuck yourself away. It's, it's coming. And, and, and then there were the then there were the zealots, and they're like, oh, we're gonna usher in the kingdom of God, alright? The Messiah's gonna come because we're gonna rebel. And, and we're gonna revolt. And we see these revolts happen throughout history, and they didn't turn out very well because the Romans were pretty strong. And so the bottom line is Jesus' kingdom didn't fit anywhere here. And Jesus is saying, man, this is it. You want to know the way to the blessed life? It's found in my kingdom. And he says, listen, what what, what happens in my kingdom is you're going to be transformed. You're going to be transformed internally. Like God begins to work on our heart in such a way that it manifests externally as we reflect his beauty and his glory to the world. Jesus says, my kingdom is, it's an upside down kingdom. I know it doesn't make sense to you. Like the world says, you need something of value in order to get in. But the kingdom of God says, not until you realize that you're utterly spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer God, that you see your need for a savior, that you get in. It's completely different. It contradicts everything that the world says, this is how you find success. This is how you find happiness. And Jesus said, that is not the way. So, so, so what, do, what do we do as we navigate over the next several weeks? And I would say I, my prayer is that God would open up our eyes and that we would slow down enough to behold him. You know, one of the things that I, I told Jackie last night, I said, babe, isn't it crazy that we take so many pictures, but we never look at them. Like my phone, I got thousands of pictures, but we never go back and look at them. When's the last time you're like, let me just scroll back and look at every picture? We we take him, we're like, okay, cool, got the shot, let's move. And and I just had this imagery that I wonder if we don't have a clear picture of Jesus many times because that's how we live with him. Like like there's a quick shot and then it's like, all right, on to the next. Read my Bible today, got a little sneak peek in, went to church, said a little prayer, kind of, I think it was a prayer. And then we wonder like, why our, our vision is so skewed and, and why we can't see because in order to behold him, you, we got to be still and we got to take the time. We got to do the work to investigate, to, to behold, to just pause and look at the beauty because, listen, can I tell you this? What you behold, you will start to become. And I think many times we're, 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 many times we look like the kingdom of the world. Why? Because we're beholding it. And we're not beholding him enough. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians 13, verse 18, it says, Now we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other, for this comes from the Spirit who is the Lord. And so, so I want you to get this picture, this, this word beholding, it has this idea of the reflection of a mirror. But it has really little to do with the reflection. It's talking about the closeness and the intimacy. Like that as you and I begin focusing more and more on Jesus, that the spirit of God begins to transform us more and more into his image. And then what does it say? It says that he takes us from one degree of glory to another. Did you hear that blessed life, that expansion, that enlargement, that capacity? We begin to grow in our knowledge of Christ and the more that he's revealed in our lives, all of a sudden things start to transform. Our prayer life goes from a monologue to a dialogue. It's just not quick prayers like, let me make it rain, Lord. No, all of a sudden it's like, I'm, I'm listening to your voice. I'm, I'm praying as a, and I'm opening up the scriptures and I'm, I'm, I'm really being still. I want to hear from you, God. I want to press in. Right? All of a sudden, uh, Scripture becomes more than just something we breeze through, but, but we're, we're seeing that this is the very words of God breathed on by the Holy Spirit, the active, living word of God. If we really believe that the Bible was God's word, I just think we, we, would, we would spend so much more time there realizing that God can incredibly transform us. I think as we look at creation, we don't even stop... To, to smell the, the flowers anymore. My, my daughter, we were on our little little walk in our neighborhood, and she's like, Dad, Dad, look, let's come down and smell. And my first thought is, I don't want to bend down there and smell that thing. Then I was like, no, I got to smell the flowers. I got to like, slow down. And smell it, man. Take it in. And as we look at the beauty of God in creation, it screams of his majesty. As we look at the Imago Dei, meaning that you and I were created in the image of God, as we look out at humanity, we can see the brushstrokes of God. We can see the beauty in all of his creation that should move us to behold him even more. But we're going so fast. I I love what this artist, Michael Chelsea Johnson, said. He says, learning how to paint the Grand Canyon well, I think will take a lifetime. Every moment is different. Clouds fly over, shadows creep, colors shift with the speed of a chameleon. You can try abstracting it as you would any landscape, but because of its slippery complexity, it resists easy analysis. But worse, the canyon is seductive and lures you away from your painting. Rather than paint, you want to just look deeply into its mysteries. At one point, I felt this call so strongly that if I had suddenly tumbled in headfirst into its awesome beauty, I don't think I would have minded. Like when's the last time we looked at the Lord like that? And just felt like I could just get lost, not, not in some like ethereal, weird way, but just, just, just looking at the reality of who he is, that we're in relationship with him. I, I mean, it's one thing, listen, we may never be able to capture the Grand Canyon with paint, but the Lord says, I want to reveal myself to you. Like the God who was way more grand than any of that canyon, who created that canyon, said, you may not be able to capture all that, but I want you to know me. I want you to understand who I am. Like that is... That is huge. Amen. That we, we can behold him. We can capture what he looks like in the person, and the life of Jesus, in the scriptures. You know, if you go to an art gallery and you say, how do, how do I really get to know a painting? You know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you you need to sit down and you need to stare at it and spend lots of time there. That'll be the first thing they tell you. You ever see those people when I was a kid, I was like, that is the most boringest thing on the planet. You just sit down and somebody's like this. But now I'm, I, I'm starting to appreciate it a little bit more. I'm like, maybe there's something more to this thing, right? And, and then they'll tell you, listen, they'll say, then just observe the obvious. Point them out. Observe them. Just things that are obviously stand out. And then they said, pay attention to where the painting takes your eye. And then lean in there for a moment. And I just wonder if we would take this same approach in our time with God, that we would, if we would just slow down and behold him and, and, and look at some of the obvious things from creation to the scripture to you know, all these things that just point to the beauty, the majesty, and the wonder of him. I wonder if, if we, would, we would slow down and take that time that he may cause our eye to see things that we never saw before and that we would have a better understanding of him. Because this is, in closing, this is what Paul's prayer was for the church of Ephesus. He said, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him. This word know is the word gnosto. It means an intimate know through experience, through relationship. It's the same word that God used to describe Adam knowing his wife Eve intimately. Paul said, I want you to know God like that he says i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people can i just point out that this word enlightened having the eyes of your heart enlightened what's so cool about that is that word enlightened is is the word photo it's like "phototis." it's where we get the word photograph and it's like paul saying i want you to have such a clear picture of the lord I want you to know him so personally and intimately that when you have a, a clear picture of who he is, you're going to be able to be, give a, a, reflect a clear picture to the world so that others can see his beauty and his majesty. And so my, my question today is, is how clear is your picture of the Lord? Like when you think about beholding him, how, like when, you think about, when you think about him, what comes to your mind is it personal? Is it close? Is it real? Is it intimate? Like when I look at my kids, it's something, something changes when you look at a photo and you know the person. And we see photos all the time. And some of you guys don't know my kids personally, so you have a preconceived idea. Like, oh, okay, like cute, cute kids. That's awesome. And it's just kind of a surface level. But when I see my kids, I see Abby, I see Hannah, I see Oli. I could tell you all the intricacies and the details about their life. I could tell you what makes them laugh, what makes them cry. I could tell you all of their personality traits. And and what's so interesting is I look at their pictures, they each reflect something different because I have a relationship with each one of them that looks a little bit different. Because individually, they're different people. And as I look at it, it's just so clear. Like, oh, my Abby, I could just sit down and tell you all about her for hours. And and, oh, my Hannah. Like, I could could go on for days. And my Olivia, I could just sit down and for hours tell you about them. Because the picture is so clear. So clear. I could tell you what's real. I could tell you what's fake. I could tell you what's true. I could tell you what's a lie. Because the picture is clear. You know, Olivia, she came to me because I always ask before I use their pictures in a sermon or if I'm gonna use a story. I say, Hey girls, I'm gonna can I use this story? Because I want to honor them. And Olivia is like, Yeah, dad, absolutely. That's totally cool. She says, Hey dad, when you see my picture, she said, What scripture comes to mind? I said, Oh, that's a great question. I said, That you're fearfully and wonderfully made. She says, Yeah, you think that about all of us. I want something specific. I was like, who are you? And so I said, baby girl, I, I need to think about that. I don't want to just give you a, a scripture off the top. But I really want to think about that. See, her question was like, I, I want you to be specific with me. And I wonder if, if we would get a little bit more specific with the Lord, that the picture might become a little bit more clear that go from a general sense to a personal sense. And as we behold him, he says, we'll become more and more like him because the spirit of God will transform us more and more into his image. And he says, it's in that place, not when you're in the pursuit of things that you think you need, but when you're pursuing Jesus and letting him form you into the person he's called you to become, it's in that place that I'll enlarge your tents. It's in that place that I'll expand your hearts. It's in that place that you'll find real happiness and fulfillment thanks again for joining us here at Fountain Church. For more details on how to get connected, visit us at fountainchurch.cc. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll see you next time.